Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Today, Karen Washington is stepping into the walk-in with me. Karen is a farmer and food justice activist born and raised in New York City. She co-founded an urban gardening organization called La Familia Verde. They support community gardens and educate young people about growing their own food. Karen is also the co-owner of Rise and Root Farm outside of New York City, which brings fresh produce to farmers markets throughout the city, giving people who might not otherwise have access to fresh and local food. And in addition to all that, Karen also co-founded Bugs, Black Urban Growers, which supports Black growers. I want to understand how you become one of the leading voices in farming and food justice. Let's step into the walk-in. Oh my goodness, I can't tell you guys how excited I am about today's guest. If ever there was a person that I have tried to track down, catch up with, find, and love upon, it is Mama Kay, Karen Washington. It has been years in the making to find this lady in my presence. I have her here today in the walk-in, and I'm sure you can hear the smile on my face. I'm sure of it. Karen Washington, thank you for stepping into the walk-in with me. Welcome. It's about daggone time, girlfriend. (laughs) Like you said, we have been trying and trying, and it took the daggone podcast to see you. So I'm glad that I'm here. Me too. Me too. And you know what? I think the reason that it took us so long to finally get together is because the momentum was building. I think spirit was building up for us to have this very important moment together. I think this conversation is so much more important now than it would have been or could have been three years ago, right? Talking about farming, Black farmers, agriculture, racial, social justice as it relates to food. We are in the apex of that right now. So I think, what better time than now, right, sis? Definitely. All of a sudden, after 400 years, 
people woke up to Black Lives Matter. And we have been doing this work for so, so long. And I'm so glad that now food is being brought to the forefront. The fact that this country was built on the backs of enslaved and indigenous people when it comes to food, when it comes to a lot of things. So I'm glad we're having this conversation today. FIFO, first in, first out. So let's just jump right in. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. So the very first segment of our podcast is called FIFO. And as you know, FIFO is first in, first out, right? That means to me that I need to know all of your old business, Karen. I want to know, oh, Karen, I know that you are a formal physical therapist. Tell me how you got into agriculture. Like, tell me where you came from and where you're going. All right, Elle, sit back because you're going to go on a bumpy ride. So okay. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in the projects, you all, Jacob Reese Houses, 10th Street Avenue D in the Lower East Side. I had great parents who were um, hardworking parents, um, really gave a lot of insights and values to my brother and myself. And in 1968, we moved from the Lower East Side to Harlem. And that was totally different because growing up in the Lower East Side, there was a mixture of all sorts of um, nationalities. But when we went to Harlem, it was only Black folks. Even Santa Claus was Black. <laughs> yes. And so really getting used to that flavor, that history of being Black. And then uh, I moved up to the Bronx in 1985. But along that path, you know, uh, education was the key. My mother and father really said that, you know, people can judge you by the color of your skin, but education is is the key. So along that path of getting education, I did get married, then I separated, and then I found myself being a single parent, raising two children and going to school. Went to Hunter College, graduated uh, with honors, magnum cum laude, graduated tops honors in my class of the first black, really, in my class and graduated tops. Wow. Wait a minute. That's amazing. Say that one more time. Just just repeat that one more time. So in my class of physical therapy, I graduated top. I was the only black in my class and I graduated tops with honors. And I say that because back in the day, people's view of what black people did and what black people were about was the show Good Times, Sanford and Son back in the day and uh, the Jefferson. So, you know, I had to say, you know what, it's not about that. There are progressive, intelligent, educated black people out there trying to get those degrees. Yeah. So from then, you know, I did my physical therapy, loved my job. I did it for 37 and a half years. But while I was doing physical therapy, I started to also look at food. Had a backyard, a new house, a backyard. And I decided I wanted to grow food. Had no training whatsoever. My parents weren't farmers. My grandparents were farmers, but once I put that seed in the soil, nurtured, and that grew, the tomato is the one that the thing that changed my world because back in the day, a tomato was not red; it was pink, had no taste. It came three in a cellophane carton, mm-hmm. and I hated tomatoes. The fact that it grew on a, it grew on a vine, it was red, and when I bit into it, it changed my world. And so, that was the beginning of me getting my hands in the dirt and thinking about gardening. But again, being a physical therapist and looking at the relationship between food and health, I realized that something was out of whack because a lot of my patients who were Black and Latinx, they grew up on farms. 
They grew up on farms. They were never sick a day in their life. And now here they are in their 70s and 80s with diet-related diseases, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Mm. And right then and there, I said, there's got to be a connection between food and, and health. health. Yes. And so that's how I got started. Wow. You know what? And it's really not such a far stretch. Like when you think about it, everything that goes into our body is just like a car, right? People say this all the time. The body is basically a machine and what you put in it to fuel it will determine the activity that the car will put out, right? That the body puts out. So that I mean, I feel like that's a given to us, but we might be telling some new news to people. What you put in is pretty much what you get out. Yeah, food is medicine. I mean, when people say food is medicine, that is correct because, again, whatever you put in your body is going to really uh, show up in your function yeah. of what you do. So that's correct. All right. So you are in physical therapy, you're realizing or noticing, because I think to some degree, you're very educated and knowledgeable woman. I think instinctually, you already knew the effects of food to the body, but working in physical therapy really brought it to your attention as it relates to your community, right? And the people that you were servicing. Was it immediately like between growing this delicious tomato and working with your consumers as a physical therapist that you felt like you needed to address food as medicine, food as it relates to socioeconomic construct. At what point did you say, actually, I'm going to lay down this physical therapy work and kind of move into food as social justice? Like, what was that first opportunity? What did that look like? Did someone approach you? Did you see a need or join a club? What did that look like for you? In 2008, after being prompted by a friend of mine, Jerome Comachero, who kept on saying, Karen, you have to come out to California. There's this program. You need to be there. And it's a six-month program. And at that time, I'm working full-time. How in the heck am I going to get six months off to go to California (laughs) to learn about organic gardening? Right. And so I tell you, sometimes I tell people, follow your passion, follow your dreams, put it out to the universe. I said to myself, you know, I got this application. I filled up the application and I got accepted. Mm. So now I got to go to my supervisor and says, I need six months from April to October to go to California to learn how to grow food organically. And so I walked in there and I said, you know, I do a lot of work around food, but I need this. And he signed the paper. Wow. He signed the paper. <laughs> HR, sign the paper. So you know, I'm telling you, some things are bound to happen in your life. You know, there's a path you walk. Mm-hmm. So I I went out to California, six months living in a tent, learning how to grow food organically. It was 40 of us. I was the oldest because I was in my 50s at the time. And I'm around these young whippersnappers. But for me, the intention was to learn as much as I could so that I can bring that back, bring those skills back. And during that time, it drew back the lens of the food system because all the time I was there, the question I kept asking is, where are the black farmers? Mm. Where are the farmers that look like me? And so when I came back in 2008, I was on a mission, y'all. I was on a mission. And that's how uh, Lori and some friends of mine started the Black Farmer Conference. Because, um, as you know, Elle, a lot of the food conferences, workshops, they don't have our faces. Right. So in 2010... The question we asked was, what's for dinner? And we had a Black Farm and Urban Garden Conference, over 500 people, 
all black for the first time, looking at instructors, authors, chefs, farmers of color, talking about the food. And so that was an aha moment for me. And that 2008 is what really transformed me into looking at the food system more critically, but also call the injustice of the food system out. Yes. And so I, you know, I want to thank my patients for allowing me to sit and get on them all the time because I was that physical therapist. Open up that cabinet. Let me see what you're eating. Open that refrigerator. But the stories that would tell me about growing food really inspired me to take that challenge, go out to California, get that education, and come back and open Pandora's box and kick this food system wide open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so the Black Farmers Conference Were you on the founding team for this also, or was this already kind of in action when you came upon it? No, 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 we started Okay. When I came back in 2008, I was just, again, going to these conferences and people were saying, oh, wow, we have so many people. We have thousands and thousands of people. And I would turn to the organizers and said, oh, well, I don't think so, because if I look around, I see five people that look like me. And so I remember getting on the phone with Lori Clevenger, who is my farming partner, um, and says, Lori, we got to do something. We got to, let's do a conference. Let's get our friends together and do a conference. And so so I said, well, let me just ask some people who have done conferences, you know, their opinion. And so I went to one particular person who would go nameless, and I said, can you help me? You know, we're trying to do a conference, a Black Farmer conference. And the reply was, Black people don't want to farm. All they want to do is play music and sports. And so when people give you that negative dialogue, you've known you struck a chord. It's time to, you know, dismiss that and go and and do it. And so in 2010, we did the first Black Farmers and Urban Gardener Conference. We have been doing it for the last nine years. This year would have been our 10th anniversary. Well, because of COVID, uh, we'll probably do it next year. But, uh, it has changed the whole uh, face of Black agriculture in this country. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. And I'm so glad that you said that because before hearing and knowing your name and who you were, I have to say that there was an obvious deficit. As a person who grew up, I grew up in the Midwest and I come from grandparents whose parents migrated from the South we were very cityfied, if you will, but we definitely had that agricultural bone within us where it was important to grow food, but there were no names that I could call out off the top of my head. But after I saw you and I saw your name, someone said your name to me. Karen Washington is someone you should meet. We were actually both living in New York at the time. You know, I'm like, wow, this is such a dynamic person and the conversation that she's bringing to the table, I remember just hoping, like, I hope it's well-received. It's really an important conversation that needs to happen. But I am not surprised that you got that response about wanting to see more Black agricultural representation at a conference, you know, because it is easier to dismiss it and say that BIPOC people are only interested in these sorts of things than it is to say that there is not only an actual physical deficit, but there's like that economic, social, political hole, or I won't even call it a hole. We'll call it cognitive dissonance around, 
you know, these topics as it relates to black and brown people. You know, like we are the farmers. We are the ones who actually grew the food from the land of this country to begin with. And to act as if that is non-existent, as if that history does not exist, it is astounding. Like when you said that, my face, I wish there was a camera so that people see the, the shock I had just in that moment when you said that. But I want to talk about something real quick that has really kind of touched my soul. A few years ago, I got to go to Barbados with Carla Hall as her sous chef for Barbados Food, Wine, and Rum Festival. Amazing experience. But as I was driving through the country, they are so gracious in Barbados that they gave me a a driver who's a local gentleman who was just so kind and so informative and gave me so much history about the country We were driving through the countryside and there's so much land, like untouched, unfertilized land. And I'm like, where are all the farmers? Like, what's happening with this? And he's like, you know, young people associate farming with slavery and they want to disassociate that. You know, they don't want anything to do with that. And hearing those words actually really broke my heart, you know, like, because it's not just an African-American thing. It's people of the diaspora in general. We have this um, sour taste in our mouth about sharecropping, um, about farming, agriculture. What do you think about that? And what, what would you say? And how do you, because this is your work, you actually encourage young people, black and brown people, to get into this work of agriculture. Like, what are the words do you say to them? How do you encourage them or pull them in or help them see the importance? I may get a little emotional on this because we have been blindsided in a way that we have given up our power. What I tell young people, like you said from the very beginning, we come from an agrarian people. We came here enslaved, in chains, not because we were dumb, Not because we were strong. We came here because of our knowledge of agriculture. Mm. The low country along the south, borders of Georgia, South Carolina, they could never survive the swampy climate, the diseases. They could never survive it. They could never survive it. We were the ones that grew the food. We brought seeds in our hair and planted the food for this nation. And when we were farming and when we had land, it was so powerful. Somehow along the way, it was put into our head that owning land and farming was slave work. And as a result, we gave up our power and now have succumbed to a system that's killing us. And so I tell people, look at the color of your skin It's the color of soil. We were meant to grow food. We were meant to have land, to own land, because that has been our power. And for so long, we have been blindsided to go away from the land and as a result, losing our power. So now with that reference, you're starting to see young people understand their relationship to food, their relationship to land access how they want to grow food, how they want to go back to the land because for so long, we've been told, don't go back to land. So as a result, other white folks are going to the land. They got the land. Why don't we have the land? Because in our head has been imprinted land slavery. No, folks, land is power. Owning your land, 
knowing where your food comes from, that's legacy. And so for so many people of color, BIPOC people who have had land, who held on to that land from generation to generation, that is so powerful. And they'll tell you it's powerful because it's a legacy that they have that they can hand down from generation to generation. And for those, and I tell young people, if you have parents or grandparents that still have land here in America, here in the Caribbean, here in Puerto Rico, hold on to that land because that land is your legacy. That land is your power. And young folks are getting it. They understand it. That's very true. They are definitely, it's such a revolution, such an agricultural revolution happening right now with young people. It's amazing. And I think that COVID really brought it to the forefront for people, you know, like having moments where you're like, I don't know if I'm able to stand in the line for a grocery shop for three hours during COVID. It really made people evaluate their food source, you know, like even me, like I started growing, I have a very, I mean, I live in the middle of Boston in a suburban area, if you will. I went out and bought a little truss and I have grew, I think I have some tomatoes that might pop up on this vine any moment now. Maybe we're too late. I don't know. But I have some peppers and I got some mints and I'm trying some things. But, it, it, you know, even in that small moment of awareness, I'm like, what can I empower myself to either grow for myself or something I can give to my friends? It challenged me to think about where my food is coming from because it's frightening when you're sitting watching the news during a pandemic and you hear the meat factories are closing because workers have COVID or production has slowed down. You can't get XYZ food for six weeks. That is a frightening moment. And if I've ever felt disempowered or disenfranchised, it was at those moments in COVID where I felt like my food source was in jeopardy, period. And I have seen more people. I've always been a plant lady. I actually wore my plant T-shirt for you. It says introvert, <laughs> but willing to discuss plants. That's me. I don't. I'm not. I'm working on my farming skills, but I can definitely create some good pure air environments. I can do that. But I see a lot of BIPOC people coming to themselves as it relates to like growing and farming and planting and sourcing. It's very um, inspiring. And that would not have been the case if it weren't for you pioneering for us back in 2008 and even today. Like you are our mother of farming. I'm so honored to have you here. I just can't believe it. Well, I just want to say I'm a, I stand on the shoulders of so many people who have been before me. The trailblazers. Drop the names. Tell us. Been Tell us. Me. Drop it. Uh, so first of all, let me just say one thing that because, you know, when you go to these farming conferences, uh, no one mentions George Washington Carver. True. Hello. True. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. All these people. No, no one mentions these people, you know, uh, Booker T. Watley. All of these people that have been in the trenches of agriculture, people don't talk about. And so there's so many people like me. I'm not going to take her because there's so many people like me that are doing the work in Philly and Detroit and in Oakland. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not about being known, you know, because we don't the recognition means nothing to me. You know, what I'm trying to do is inspire young BIPOC people. Two, grow food because it gives you power. 
get access to land because it gives you power. To be able to control your own food system gives you power because you know exactly who grew it, what's going into your body, and then you know what we do? We share what we got. That's what we do as our people. We share the harvest. Yes. And that needs to be done in this time. It's time. That's right. It's time. The Volrack Company has been making industrial cooking gear for 145 years, and they brought that long history to the table when they decided to launch Nuku, their line of cookware and bakeware for home chefs. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products. With Nuku, it really gives them the confidence to explore their passion and focus on the joy that drives them to the kitchen. Well, what we like to say is Nuku stands out by not standing in the way. Don't let subpar cookware stand in your way. Nuku Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for a 35% savings off their stockpots. That's nucu.com, promo code KITCHEN. I'm a food stylist by trade which means that aesthetics are very important to me. Whether it's food or home decor, I want things that are beautiful, well-made, and tell a story. That's why Room & Board is so great. They focus on furniture and home decor that is modern, well-made, and trend-proof. And they work with family-owned businesses across the country to source the absolute best in American craftsmanship. And get this, more than 90% of their products are manufactured in America. Even better, they offer free design services over the phone, through video conference, or in their stores. Their experts can help with any project, big or small, from picking a pillow to creating a 3D rendering of your space. Go to roomandboard.com to learn more. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beer, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I'd say, well, I just got 120th of a customer. I only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. Okay, so again, like I said, I my grandparents are the children of people who migrated from the South during the Industrial Revolution. I think other than the obvious reasons of people leaving the South for trying to find better ways of life for their families because of the deep-seated racist activities that were happening in the South for hundreds of years, but definitely during the time of the Industrial Revolution— 
where do you think the disconnect happened with, I would say that was my great grandmother and all of those people migrating from the South to the North? The great migration shift was really based on racism. Mm -hmm. The Jim Crow's laws, the black hole laws that were out there forcing people off their land, you know, at gunpoint. I mean, just dragging, literally dragging black people off their land. Because again, understanding how powerful that was. Black people owning land, being able to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Whites at that time did not want that. Are you kidding? You got a black family and they have their own home, their own business. They're able to send their kids to school. We're not going to have that in the South. And so a lot of the migration came from the segregated laws that were enforced and put upon black people. And so for them, it was an escapism because even though the North was doing a lot of it covertly racism, it was a draw, come up and work in the factories. And But still, you're working in the factories, still getting low pay, still being a second-class citizen, but you left the most precious thing, which was your land, the land that held the power. And so again, uh, we got to sort of, you know, we have to really unpeel history to really examine where the wealth inequality in this country has happened. Yeah. Loss of land. Because back in the day, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when black people had more land than white people in the South, that was major. That was major. And once we start losing that land, the wealth gap increased. And so now you see the wealth inequality that we have because we start, I'm reading this book, The Color of Money, because in it, it talks about how black people collectively try to build wealth, put their money in institutions that were not trustworthy. And as a result, lost all that money that they put into institutions because they thought it was safe. And as a result, at the end of the day, all that money was lost and all that money was tied to land. And so this has been an inherent racism, a racist system that has plagued black folks. And so when people look at black and brown people, oh, you know, they they, they don't get ahead because they don't want to work hard or they don't get ahead. It's this an inherent racism in a system throughout the ages that have prevent black people from building wealth. Yeah. It's a new day today. It's a new day. It's a new day. That's right. Oh, I didn't expect to be so fired up this early in the morning. I'm excited. Okay, so I have two questions. I'm glad you kind of started with the history lesson because I wanted to ask you about, and this is just my personal curiosity. What can you tell me about like the history of urban farming in New York City as far back as you you know, like 1800s? Because I lived in New York. We're building to building. We're shoulder to shoulder. It's a very compact situation. Was there a documented history of like urban farming in Harlem and Brooklyn? I'm glad you mentioned this. Look at urban agriculture, like in the city. From my point of view, I know I came to the Bronx in 1985, but I had learned that there was a a history of community garden work in the Lower East Side back in the 1970s. I think it was Liz Christie and other Lower East Side residents who took over empty lots and they did what was called guerrilla gardening because they just went Mm -hmm. in and, you know, they saw the fences, broke down the fences and just start throwing like seed bombs in just to grow things to make the neighborhood look better. 
Wow. So for me, I didn't really get into the community garden movement until 1980s. And again, back in the 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s, can you believe at one point New York City had over 15,000 vacant lots, mostly in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color because there was a financial crisis going on, city didn't have any money, uh, you know, there was a huge drug infiltration of crack cocaine, you know, was, and so there was a lot of people that moved, they call it white flight, people moved to the suburbs, and people that were left alone here had no option but to take those empty lots and turn them into community gardens. And so when people look at the history of the community garden movement, it wasn't about growing food first. It was about bringing back hope. Yes. You know, and prosperity into the neighborhoods and preventing the drug activities, the violence that was happening. And so as we move forward, everything was going well until 1998 when Giuliani decided he wanted to auction off 100 community gardens. And so that what? was the that was the thing that changed the community garden movement because back in the day people were complacent. You know, oh, we're going to grow these you know, have these gardens and we're going to grow this food and have put the flowers. Again, it's people in marginalized community finding their power of growing food and land. And then the city saying, wait, 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 we can't have this. What? People in low-income neighborhoods getting strong, finding their power, understanding the importance of growing food. You know what? We're going to auction 100 gardens to the biggest real estate people in the city. And that galvanized the movement, like you're seeing now, that galvanized. We took to the streets. We marched on City Hall. And as a result, we came up with an agreement with the city. We saved those 100 community gardens. And still, the community garden network, which is around 500 community gardens in New York City now to this day, there's a continual, I would say, fight in a soft way. Because, again, you have to balance gardens with development. We live in New York City. People are coming to the city. Land is all-time high in terms of premium. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that there is ample gardens for the next generation that's going to come. And so we're only safe as the present administration. So I want people to understand, people through in, out, in the country that live in municipalities, that you're only safe with the present administration. So the Blasio is finished next year. And again, whoever's gonna run for mayor, again, community gardens and urban agriculture has to be in their plan to protect. Yeah, it'll be up for grabs if we don't have the right administration in place. Mm -hmm. Again. Mm -hmm. Again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The wall slide. I would really like for you to tell me about maybe a time and a place where that was the case for you in terms of having a moment that we call the wall slide, you know, that moment that just really breaks you down where you just have to kind of like, it brings you to your knees. And I remember reading about the loss of your brother in 2010, you know, and it resonated with me because I lost my grandmother in 2013, living, I was living in Brooklyn, finishing my master's degree. And I lost my grandmother to what I consider, and I'm sure most health 
professions would consider the complications of diabetes, not so much the issues that brought her to the hospital to begin with. And um, that really shifted me as a person, you know, about how I need to be approaching food as it relates to my people, right? Not just my family people, but my community at large. And that resonated with me. That moment in your life, reading about that really resonated with me. And I don't know if that was considered your wall slide moment, but it definitely reminded me of mine. So, you know, tell me about a moment in your life that really brought something full circle for you, either who you are or what your mission work is in this world. I think being a single parent and raising two kids on my own, I think that's, I think making that hard decision when my children were five and three, that I can do bed by myself. I got married very young and uh, I was a, a quote unquote housewife. And my day was getting up, taking care of the kids, watching soap operas and gossiping. And I said, this is going to be how I'm going to be the rest of my life. And then wanting to go back to school and didn't get that support of going back to school, that I had to make a a decision, a hard decision, that I, I could not live my life like this. And so making that decision and then that moment where all of a sudden you sit in silence and said, you know what, I am now a single parent with two small kids trying to go to school so that I can better myself and that I can take care of them. Thank God for my mom and my brother and my father who were there to support me. But that was a moment in time where, you know, when you feel you're at your lowest and to realize there's something inside you as a mother said, you know what, you're going to make it. You got two kids that you got to take care of and you're going to make it. And I'm so proud. I'm going to tear up. I'm so proud of my children. Uh, my daughter, you know, the first to get her PhD in our family as an educator. I'm so proud of her. My son, who is the director of food safety for the New York City Health Department. I'm so proud of him as well. And to look back, you know, you never have a chance to sit for a moment and look back because as a single parent, you're always trying to do the hard work. You're always doing the hard And for yourself, it's really not hard work. It's like, you know, what you got to do to survive. Yeah. To survive. And so now I can sit back and do that sort of reflection. But I think that was like the most difficult part in my life because you never know if you're going to make it or not. What was one one moment that, if you can recall, because I'm from a single parent home and I know that it's probably a lot of those moments, but what was one particular moment where you just didn't know if you were going to make it? Like, does one stand out in your mind when you were like, uh, this is make or break, Karen, what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a time where by, you know, and I'm pretty sure it happens to a lot of people where all of a sudden you are behind in your bills. Mm. The money's not coming in. The bills are piling high. You starting getting notice from the mortgage company that they're going to take away your house. You don't know what bills to pay first. And so I know what it is to be on the brink of losing a house, on the brink of deciding what to do first. Do you feed your family first or do you pay the bill? And then also to hide that from your family, you know, because you don't want to 
feel that you're a failure. You know what I'm saying? So that was a very difficult time in my life because I didn't want to tell anybody. You know, I didn't want to tell anybody that, you know, I had hit sort of rock bottom, but I got through it. You know, I got myself on a payment plan. I got through it, but I never, never forgot that feeling because I can appreciate what I have and I can appreciate what people are going through because I was there and I know how that feels. But yeah. there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I was able to to be thankful for what I have each and every day as a blessing. You know, Karen, I have hit rock bottom at least twice in my entire young life. I mean, I'm only 44. I'm, am I 44 yet? I'm close enough. But I've hit rock bottom twice. And uh, I do agree with you in that once you've had that experience... You know that you don't ever want to revisit it, but it also does bring a huge appreciation for those moments of stability. It also brings appreciation in a different kind of way when you watch people go through a struggle, you know, and you can only hope, you know, that you have the resilience to get through it and the resource and But it's no surprise to me that uh, you made it beyond that. You not only are a resourceful person, for yourself, clearly, but you are also very much a resource for the community in terms of teaching us how to empower ourselves. And so I want to just honor you and the ancestors on whose shoulders you stand for that work because it is not easy. It's for the chosen few. And and I'm so glad you're chosen to do that work with us. Thank you for sharing that vulnerable moment with me. I appreciate that. All right. So I want to talk about food. That's why we're here. We're here to talk about some good food, right? What's your favorite growing experience? But from can I tell you the first time? I'm gonna share this story with you. Don't laugh, but um, because you know I'm I'm 100% Detroit City girl, and my grandmother and I really we loved cooking together. But one of our favorite vegetables was Brussels sprouts. And so we always would buy them already trimmed off the stock. You know, at the grocery store, you just have a bundle of Brussels and you just pick for them. So there's a market in Detroit called Randazzo's Market, and it's a fresh produce market. It's huge. It's beautiful. And so we go to Randazzo and we're walking through the aisles, figuring out what we're going to make for dinner. And we see Brussels sprouts on a stalk. (laughs) So we look at each other like... What in the world? Like Brussels sprouts grow on a stalk? We had no idea, right? No idea. And so I think that was the moment for both of us. It was kind of an aha moment. Like it's great to eat fresh vegetables, but it's even better to know the source and the experience of growing the food. And that's something that I really picked up since I've been doing my little backyard gardening here. What is your favorite growing experience? Like, what do you most enjoy watching grow on the farm? Gosh, that's a hard question. Um, Believe it or not, I'm into peppers now. I mean, (laughs) something about peppers. I'm like a pepper freak. I mean, like a tomato got me started, but it's something about peppers. So I'm growing now some um, jalapeno peppers. I'm growing some serrano peppers. I'm growing some cayenne peppers. And I just like a little heat to my food. And so usually I'll take them, either dry them or put them in a jar with some vinegar and then pour the sauce over my food like that or 
chop up them in salad. I don't know. All of a sudden, I'm on this sort of uh, pepper kick. That's what I'm going. I'm going Thai chili peppers, and they're they're turning from green to red right now. Ooh, I'm so excited about it. Okay, put them in a little vinegar. So a little... Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so we're going to talk more about what I need to do with these peppers when I'm done. Cause I'm like, I can't eat all these hot peppers. What am I going to do? You know, I loved hearing so much about your past with agriculture and farming and advocacy and legislation. There's so much more that we don't really get to touch on because this is such a abbreviated conversation, but I would love for you to tell me about your newest project that you're working on. Yeah, so in December, we got together with a group of Black farmers and activists because we're trying to look at the system as a whole, the food system here in New York State as a whole, what's missing. And so, again, going through Pandora's box and looking at the census, what we found is that out of 57,000 farmers in New York State, this is according to the 2017 census, because the current one hasn't come out yet, there are 57,000 farmers and only 139 are Black. Wow. And so how do we talk about a just food system with those numbers? And so, you know, we got together trying to meet, we did meet with the um, ad commissioner to sort of like, you know, something has to be done with these numbers, trying to get a meeting with the governor because there's got to be something in place, money set aside to help with the fact that this is a huge problem. And so we've been meeting back and forth. So then a group of us said, you know what, it's time for us to start thinking about black wealth. Black wealth. And so a group of us got together and um, the conversation really started back in 2017, but it really started to move this year, this early spring, when we started this Black Farmer Fund. The Black Farmer Fund is going to be a charitable loan fund based on helping Black farmers, Black businesses, Black entrepreneurs access to the land, capital, you name it. And I'm so grateful for this because it's starting to bring wealth within the Black community, starting to have that conversation. It's not only about developing a fund, but there's a strong educational component of financial education that we don't talk about within the Black community, about wealth building, social capital, wealth building. And so... We have this young person named Olive Watson who's really at the forefront of this fund. Um, we're waiting to get our 501c3. But in the meantime, we've garnered a lot of recognition, a lot of support. As a matter of fact, we just, we're just we starting a pilot program because we feel it's the community that should make the decision on how this money is going to be given out. Mm-hmm. And it's the community that needs to sit down and talk about what does financial education look like? What does investment look like? What does saving look like? Those hard conversations that people of color, BIPOC people of color, we don't have those conversations within our communities. We're always with the hands out. You know, always with the hands out. We're not in the hands in when it comes to the decision making. So I'm excited about this fund. 
I'm excited what it can do. I'm excited how it can bring economic wealth back into our community. Because for so long, folks, as black and brown people, collectively, we have power. But what we've done is that we have extracted, we go out of our community to buy things. We don't do base building within our community to take our money, our revenue, and put it back into our communities and people that look like us. And so now having that strong, hard education, look, folks, for us to move ahead, we've got to come together and base build wealth. And that means that looking at ways that we can start supporting our own businesses that look like us and not being pushed out. And having outsiders come in and start taking over the things that we know how to do best when it comes to food and entrepreneurship and, and owning restaurants and stuff like that. So I'm excited about this whole new wave of looking at black folks that are interested in yeah. wealth building, interested in building an economy that's not extractive, but building an economy that have our faces and has our values and morals. That's very exciting, Karen. And I'm even more excited to let you know that America's Test Kitchen has actually set up prior to this conversation and prior to inviting you to this podcast, we have an internal fund matching program for the Black Farmers Fund. All of our employees who make donations to the Black Farmers Fund, the company matches that donation by 50%. So I'm excited that we now actually have this extra connection. It's extra special because I did not know when I brought organizations to America's Test Kitchen's attention on who to support. I did not know that you were directly related to that, but I definitely felt like the mission and foundation of Black Farmers Fund was important and that we should be supporting that. So... I'm happy to be involved. I'm so happy to be included in that. That really makes me feel warm. So I'm going to be making my donation this week um, so that it can be matched. All of our employees who make donations to Black Farmers Fund will be matched by America's Test Kitchen. So we believe in your mission. We support you 100%. And you know one thing, Elle, about this, the reason why we started specifically first in New York State, because we want to get it right. Mm -hmm. And when we get it right, it's going to Detroit. It's going. It, we're handing it off. That's right. Detroit, Chicago, Oakland. Do it. We did it for you. Take it. That's right. Take it and do the same thing. That's exactly what we're going to do. It's just the prototype, and we believe in it 100%. I'm so excited to be involved, Karen. A moment in the walk-in. All right, Karen. So here we go. We have what we call a moment in the walk-in. This is when one of our listeners writes a letter to our guest for some advice. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's professional. Sometimes it's a little off the wall. But here's a letter I have for you today. So this letter is from Martine in Brooklyn. Martine says, Hi, Karen. I'm so honored to be able to talk to you about farming and agriculture and everything that you do for us in the city and state of New York. My question to you is, I want to become more supportive and active in my local urban gardens, but I'm finding that they're often booked to the T. It's very hard to get land and plot and space. What can I do maybe from my home or what can I do with my money and finances to support urban gardens? Martina, great question. Thank you so much for paying such a strong interest in urban agriculture. Yes, 
It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, during this pandemic, all of a sudden, everybody wants to grow food. But I tell people, if you have any land, front yard, backyard, windowsill, you can start there. Also, what a lot of people are doing is they're asking neighbors that have backyards or front yards if they can grow for them. You know, if they can use their spaces. So I tell people to sort of sometimes think outside the raised beds mm-hmm. and look at other opportunities where you can grow food. Churches, businesses often have land. You can go to them and ask if you can, you know, have a plot of land where you can grow something or take care of the flowers. There's opportunities out there. There's a lot of potential. There's a lot of land out there. And especially seniors. I remember as a physical therapist, it's part of my job. I love doing my job, but I've had patients who had strokes. And so they had backyards and front yards that they could no longer take care of. Mm. And so what would I do? All right. I would go in and weave their front yards, their backyard, plant vegetables for them. Again, it was an opportunity that's out there for a lot of seniors who can no longer take care of their front or backyards and are willing to have somebody come in and work the ground. So think about doing things outside the raised bed, but an excellent questions and I wish you well. Wow, that was a great answer. I never even thought about that, Karen. It's definitely another way to extend yourself to the community and being part of the community and just like helping some of your neighbors because that is really what it's all about, right? Community growth and development. I love that. Yep. I love that. Karen, it's been so wonderful having you in the walk-in with me. I'm so happy to have adopted Mama Kay. I want you all to please do some research about the Black Farmers Fund. Consider donating your money, your resource. If you have resources that the organization can benefit from that is about uplifting and empowering BIPOC people in the farming and agricultural community, please offer that help. And... Wow, what an amazing conversation. I feel so empowered. I'm about, I'm about to go out here and check on my peppers and water my little tomato That's vine, right. see if I can get a little green Better. tomato. And it's just been so wonderful having you, Karen. Thank you for your time, your work, your commitment to us, and for finally being here with me face to face in the walk in. It's about time. <laughs> I know. It's been great. Thank you so much. If you want to support Karen's work, visit blackfarmerfund.org to learn more. They have a button right on the homepage that says take action with ways that you can help and get involved. And if you're in or near New York City, look up Rise and Roof Farm to see where you can buy Karen's produce. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's the walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like the walk-in and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caroline Rickard. 
Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Hen Margolis, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.